pictures are important. One is worth a thousand words, as they say. So on the day Ira and I got married, it was important to get some good photos to remember this occasion. We have some fun stories and memories from our special day, October 10, 2016. There are a lot of emotions that day in Virginia. I was mostly nervous and not liking the attention. Ira was doing fine until we drove to the Washington National Cathedral in D.C. to take photos. As we got there, it turns out that we forgot to pack the veil that Ira's mother had sewn by hand with much effort and care. We did eventually manage to get around the problem, and now we have reminders of that special day with us. Again, pictures are important. The beautiful, the abstract, and the sublime often find expression in signs, logos, and objects. Now, of course, symbols can't tell us everything about a marriage or another important institution, but they can be helpful reminders and even teaching tools. And in the same way, the Bible is filled with word pictures that illustrate the life we have in God. And specifically in today's passage, there are images that will help us appreciate the good news of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Galatians 3, 15 to 29. Galatians 3, 15 to 29. You'll find uh, the passage in page 811 of the Pew Bible, if you're using that. 811. Galatians 3, 15 to 29. Brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Not to Abraham and his seed were the promises made, he does not say, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. And this I say, that the law which was 400 and 30 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before God, by God in Christ, that it shall make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer a promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. What purpose then does the law serve? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was appointed through angels by the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator does not mediate for one only, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not, for if there had been a law given which could have given life, truly righteousness would have been by the law. But the scripture has confined all under sin, that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept under guard by the law, kept for the faith which would afterward be revealed. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. 
for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Here's where we are in Galatians. Just as he did back in chapter 1, Paul calms down after an emotional outburst. You sense a gentler tone as he addresses them as brethren. After starting chapter 3 with, Oh foolish Galatians. But that's not the only contrast between verses 1 to 14 and 15 to 29. Look where it says, I speak in the manner of men in verse 15. Paul's about to draw analogies from human life to explain spiritual truths. Just as our Lord used parables, Paul uses word pictures here. That makes him an effective preacher, apostle, and teacher. So that's why, whereas the first half of Galatians 3 is filled with quotation marks and Old Testament proof passages, the second half is held together by illustrations. I observed three in particular and three corresponding lessons. These pictorial lessons help us defend our perfect gospel. One, the promises of God are secure like a sealed contract. The promises of God are secure like a sealed contract. That's in verses 15 to 20. Two, faith in Christ liberates us like adult freedom. Faith in Christ liberates us like adult freedom. That's verses 21 to 25. And three, identification with Christ transforms us like a new uniform. Identification with Christ transforms us like a new uniform. That's verses 26 to 29. First, the promises of God are secure like a sealed contract. So let me begin with the story that's partly true, partly fiction. Recently, my family faced some trouble with the Parsonage air conditioning unit. We've endured some hot days in May and June, but Phil Grabato and Stephen Bailey helped us find some quick short-term and long-term solutions. Eventually, the old outdoor unit was replaced with the new one. I received some product warranty information, which I passed on to the church, so I'm really thankful for that. Now, let's say there's now a five-year warranty on the new product. Time passes by. And in three years, a church, the church wants to do an inspection of the AC equipment. So I ask, why are you doing an inspection? Is something wrong? Stephen says, no, we just want to be good stewards of church property. And Phil says, you owe me another coffee for this. <laughs> then I remember and ask, wait, do we still have that warranty? If something's wrong, can we call for repairs? Sure, they answer, but we're just doing an inspection, and it'll show us whether we need to make a warranty claim. 
So where am I going with this? The warranties like God's promise and the inspections like God's law. The warranty initiates a lasting relationship between the seller and the customer. You guys know all this. There are guarantees and promises that result in the buyer's peace of mind, so they say, right? The inspection, on the other hand, lets us know that something's not right. It points out the problems to address. It may alarm us, sure, but then we appreciate all the more the assurance of having a warranty. So it's amazing how much the wording of contracts sounds like the language of biblical covenants. We enjoy not only a one-year, five-year, or ten-year warranty. We have an everlasting covenant through the blood of Jesus. The terms of God's contract are great. He offers something better than physical repair. There's that amazing spiritual fix, the remission of sins. And the benefits stretch on to eternity. Eye has not seen, nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. The promises of God are secure, like a sealed contract. On the other hand, the inspections like the law, by the law is the knowledge of sin. The periodic inspection revealed the problems at home. We may not want to be bothered, but it's important to know how we're falling short of our responsibilities. It's not a bad thing to discover the problems we caused. And when we feel overwhelmed by them, we appreciate all the more the warranty. In the same way, when our sins overwhelm us, we appreciate the promises we have in the gospel. That's why it's important to take our manual, right, the Lord, and read the Lord's terms and conditions. And we won't panic in times of spiritual crisis. Galatians 3.15 to 20 give us important information about the law and the promise so that we can have peace in our hearts. So let's go through these verses using what, I, what we um, normally think of, like the four W questions and one H question. So I'm going to use what, who, when, how, and why. What, who, when, how, and why. First, in verse 15, we ask, what is the promise? Paul's going to connect with the Galatians using an easy concept, like the way I just did. The word covenant may sound foreign to us, but the word is used in everyday settings for contracts, testaments, and wills. And even if such documents are mere human products written in ink, they were binding by law. Once confirmed, no one takes away or adds to it. Next in verse 16, we ask who are the beneficiaries of the promise? The simple answer is Abraham and Jesus. Paul agrees with Matthew and Luke that Jesus is Abraham's descendant, and through him, all nations are blessed. Easy enough. Now the apostle does get technical here, pointing out that there's only one singular who can qualify as Abraham's seed, Jesus. 
The word seed is one of those collective nouns, like offspring, um, collective singular noun, like offspring, family, committee, herd, choir. Paul's going to develop this grammatical argument later in this passage. So he's planting the seed now, pun intended. In verse 17, we ask when were the promises given. To answer this question, Paul introduces into the timeline another document, the Law of Moses. It's important to note the gap. The law was not introduced during Abraham's days. It wasn't composed soon after he died. Not even a few years later or decades afterward. We're talking about hundreds of years. If we calculate from Abraham to Moses, we're actually closer to 500 years. But since what was said to Abraham was repeated to his son and grandson, the clock should really begin in Genesis 46. That's the last time the Lord appeared to Jacob to confirm his words. So with hundreds of years having passed, the law has no influence or effect on the covenant of promise. In verse 18, we ask, how were the promises made? The reward of the law depends on man's obedience, but God gave the inheritance to Abraham by promise. That verb gave should not be taken casually. It's the verbal form of the noun grace. So God granted, graciously gave, or freely gave to Abraham. The law, on the other hand, requires our work and effort. Grace and works are not compatible. In verses 19 and 20, there's a why question about the law. Why questions usually answer questions about purpose. So Paul asks, what purpose then does the law serve? He has another illustration for the law later, but here he's a little bit more textbook. And I'll summarize the answer in two parts. The law makes us look bad, and the law makes the promises look good. First, the law makes us look bad. It was added because of transgressions. It doesn't mean that the law is to be blamed for sin in this world. Remember, the law is like an inspection that shows us the defects in our lives or the physical examination that reveals cancer. It leads us to long for Christ, the only one who can fix and heal us. The law also makes the promises look good. Here's a painful illustration. In the old days, before express and online options, I dreaded a trip to the Maryland Vehicle Administration. All that I could be out of there in a few few minutes. (laughs) I wish there's no waiting, no taking a number. No paperwork, no intermediary to finish your business. Well, too bad, I told myself as I sat there for hours. 
Now, a long, painful afternoon at MVA might serve as an illustration of the covenant under Moses. When it comes to the law, standing between God and Israel were middlemen, human and angelic messengers, Moses and the angel of the Lord representing the two sides. Much stands between us and God. In addition, a mediator exists, and by definition, a mediator does not stand for one party, but for two. If one of the two parties fail, the law would be broken. The relationship would be in danger. And that's bound to happen with simple humanity as one of the two parties. As they say, a chain is only strong as its weakest link, right? Or the weaker link, by the way. On the other hand, in the promise, it says, God is one. Like, what does that mean? Like, God is one. It's talking about the promises. God is the one obligated and the only one obligated at that. There's no way the promise can fail because it all depends on the Lord. We saw in verse 18 that God granted the inheritance to Abraham by grace. And he promised it directly with no mediator. Spoke directly to Abraham. Because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. Unlike the covenant made with Moses, God alone passes between the animal pieces. The law is a bilateral agreement, and its blessings are dependent partly on human performance. The promise is a unilateral agreement, and its blessings are dependent only in God's performance. That's why the promises of God are secure, like a sealed contract. So now with all this talk of contrast between the law and the promise, one might get the impression that they're opposed to each other. Paul anticipates such a thought in verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Certainly not. And that leads us to the second Gospel principle in pictures, Faith in Christ liberates us like adult freedom. Paul explains why the law is absolutely not opposed to the promises of God. The apostle states right away that the law was never designed to give life, Remember that it's a diagnostic tool, not the cure. It reveals sin in our fleshly body as sin reigns in death. Life under Moses was a ministry of death as the letter kills. But Jesus is the word of life. Grace reigns through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. After saying what the law cannot do in verse 21, Paul tells us what the law can do in verses 22 to 25. If you read verses 22 and 23 in isolation, you may get an image of the law as a jailer or a prison warden. It sounds a bit negative. 
The word for has confined in verse 22 is used by Luke in Luke 5 verse 6 to describe fishermen catching a net full of fish. The word for were kept under guard in verse 23 is used to describe how Paul's enemies tried to trap him in Damascus in 2 Corinthians 11.32. That's the restrictive power of the law, or synonymously, the scripture. And the law just sounds very cold and personal. But if we go on to verses 24 and 25, we get a warmer image of the law. The word tutor there in the original language is pedagogos. From that word, we get pedagogy or pedagogue. But the word literally means boy leader. The pedagogos was a slave whose job was to protect the son, the son of the household, and prevent him from getting into trouble. He had to get, to, get the kid to school and get the kid back home. He had the power of discipline at his disposal if he gets out of line. So it's hard to find an exact equivalent today. And if there is one, please let me know because I would like to have one of these. But um, you see, and you see various attempts in our English translations. The English Standard Version has guardian, while the older King James Version has schoolmaster. So... We're trying. Tutor seems to be a you know the attempt that we see in the NKJV. Whatever word we decide on, uh, we understand that the pedagogos exerted authority over the child until he came of age. He was given power over him from middle childhood, about like seven years old to late adolescence, to lead the boy into adulthood, manhood. In the same way, the law over time brings us safely to Christ, protecting us on the way and restraining us from going astray. Yes, it's true that the law itself could not justify us, but we'd be wise to listen to what it says about Christ. So I think it's important for even children to understand the law in the Old Testament. Maybe starting with the Ten Commandments. Why? Because if we believe in Moses, we would believe in Jesus too. Because Moses wrote about Jesus. Jesus himself said it in John 5, 46. Moses truly said, the Lord our God will raise up for us a prophet like him. Moses the lawgiver brings us to Jesus the grace giver. The result is that faith in Christ liberates us like adult freedom. So why would we want to go back to life under the law? So the other day I took my wife and son to Laurel, the city where I spent most of my childhood. As I was passing through familiar roads, I decided it's time to tell my family all about my experiences growing up in this town. I will talk whether they liked it or not. And I think not, but oh well, I'm driving. Now I'm rambling on and on about the bookstore where I work. It no longer exists. The former gym I went to, also not there anymore. 
The batting cage here and the racetrack there and the buffet restaurant in that corner, I'm fairly certain I've been tuned out at this point. I could have also driven them to Deerfield Run Elementary, Dwight D. Eisenhower Middle School and Laurel High School, but I spared them and we didn't go. Why? Well, there's no time to relive the past. No time for wistfulness and nostalgia. I'm no longer that awkward child growing up with a single mother. I'm still awkward, yes, but now I'm an awkward husband and father. I live somewhere else now, and it's time to get back home, feed my kid, and get back to work. My identity has been so completely changed that my relationship with my past has completely changed. In the same way, since I've arrived to faith in Christ, my relationship with the law has changed. I should never see the law without its reference to Christ. Always keep in mind that first and foremost, the Bible points to our Savior. The Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We must not turn to the pages of the law without keeping our fingers on the promises of faith. Faith in Christ liberates us like adult freedom. It's only through Jesus that we move beyond our sinful immaturity under the law to our full potential as saints by faith. We're not meant to stay as a child, dwell in the past, looking for some neverland like Peter Pan, the boy who never grows up. In Christ, we are put on the new man. Now we walk by faith, looking for the new heaven and new earth. So God works in us such a radical transformation that our relationship with him changes our relationship with the law changes, and of course our relationship with one another changes as well. That leads us to the third gospel truth. Identification with Christ transforms us like a new uniform. In verses 26 to 29, Paul's pivoting Building on the sons of Abraham argument to advance the sons of God argument. You see how verse 26 looks similar to verse 7. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Is like only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And it is through faith that we have Abraham as our father and Christ as our brother. That's why we are sons of Abraham and sons of God. Now, instead of continuing with this sonship argument, Paul pauses to talk about another familiar experience. It's an experience every healthy disciple shared from the beginning of his or her walk with the Lord, baptism. Here's a quick review of this ordinance, and this is from our documents. In our church statement of faith, we say, we believe that the gospel commission of Matthew 28, 18 to 20 is for the church today. That means we must follow Jesus' command to baptize new believers. 
Elsewhere, we say, baptism is recognized as a scriptural ordinance. New converts and Christians who have not been baptized shall be encouraged to partake of this ordinance. Baptism is an outward sign of regeneration and an open profession of new birth. Immersion of the believer is the only method of baptism employed by faith Bible church. Baptism after conversion, and this is somewhere else, it says that baptism after conversion is also required for membership here. So coming back to Galatians, Paul's argument in Galatians 3.27 only makes sense if baptism is done voluntarily with saving faith and through immersion. After immersion, the baptizee emerges soaked in water as if he or she's clothed in water. Paul's argument doesn't really make sense if someone sprinkled you as an infant before you made your own profession of faith. I love my Presbyterian friends and respect evangelicals from the Episcopalian and the Anglican traditions, but this is where I disagree with them about baptism. Now, Romans 6 goes into more detail about baptism, how it symbolizes our union with Christ in death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Paul goes on there to talk about the newness of life and freedom from sin that comes with this new identity. But here in Galatians 3, Paul's focused on our common experience, which binds us together in a new community. Identification with Christ transforms us like a new uniform. I'm not saying that we all become devoid of personality and diversity in the body of Christ. Paul says quite the opposite in 1 Corinthians 12. What I am saying is that Jesus has broken down the middle wall of separation between Jews and Gentiles. Because of the gospel, a man with a lower income and status is a beloved brother. By following the example of Christ's love, a believing couple can unite despite that enmity between man and woman. They can enjoy being heirs together of the grace of life. Brothers and sisters in faith can protect and honor each other in the household of faith. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Identification with Christ transforms us like a new uniform. According to a Jewish tradition, the rabbis had a daily prayer that went something like this. Blessed are you, O God, for not making me a Gentile, slave, or woman. It's possible that Paul knew this very prayer and prayed it himself. He used to think that as a religious male Jew, he was better than others. But at the moment he met Christ on the Damascus Road, he saw his righteousness as filthy rags. Jesus took Paul and made him his own. Christ put on him the garments of salvation and covered him with the robe of righteousness. And the Lord offers that same privilege to Gentiles, slaves, and women, so that by faith we can all belong to Jesus. 
And how do we belong to Jesus? Remember that the word seed is a collective singular, a hybrid of singular and plural. Through faith in Christ, we unite with him. By uniting with Christ, we can all be Abraham's seed, heirs according to promise. Identification with Christ transforms us like a new uniform. So think carefully about these images that help us understand the gospel or remind us of it. Without putting on Christ, we are nothing but sinners in dire need of mercy. Though God has created us and loved us, we have broken his commands, sinning in thought, word, and deed. We've transgressed the holy law in so many ways. We failed to hold up our end of the bargain. We deserve nothing but eternal damnation, separation from the Lord who's been faithful to us. But praise God as he has provided a way of redemption. Son of God became man and came to us as the seed of Abraham. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Though Jesus never broke God's commands, he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. He took on himself the curse of the law so that we might receive the blessings of Abraham. After finishing his work on the cross, Jesus rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, and he'll return someday to judge all mankind. So what should be our response? How can we escape from under the law's custody? The Bible says Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So repent, turn from sin and self-righteousness. Trust in Jesus, turn to him for salvation. You cannot earn it or deserve it. You only receive God's gift of eternal life as a beggar would receive a gift from a king. We are all beggars who find mercy in Christ, poor and naked without him. But when we put on Christ, we are granted a most heavenly welcome and the ultimate dignity. These are beautiful images of the gospel. And there's one more picture, one more word picture we'll, we need to discuss. Besides baptism, there's another ordinance believers practice. It's a word picture that symbolizes our continual communion with Christ and with one another. Because of our new identity in Christ, because we professed our faith in Jesus through baptism, we're commanded to come together and partake of the Lord's Supper. So let's do that next after we pray. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you make all things new. Lord, we think about 
what we used to be, how we lived without you. Lord, what we would be if we didn't find grace. Lord, we thank you that you've saved us and we have this life that we have and that the promises you have made to us will never fail. And Lord, that we have been transformed into spiritual adulthood and that we are put on your son, Jesus Christ. We are transformed by your grace. And why would we go back to life without you, trying to be good enough, trying to be good enough for heaven, good enough for others, when we are accepted by you, how you love us, how you welcome us. Like the prodigal son, you put on, give us the new robe. May we remember that this is the glorious truth of the gospel. May gratitude fill our hearts as we live for you this week. Pray all these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.